नमो तगवतो अर्हत सबुस नमो तगवतो अर्हत सबुस नमो तगवतो अर्हत सबुस Good afternoon friends. So here we are on the second day of this retreat. So far we've found out what the problem is. And now today we're going to find out the origin and its cessation. Now the uh the reason why the Buddha is called the consummate physician is because of these four noble truths. his diagnosis of the problem its origin the fact that you can fix it the cessation of it and the way to go about doing that so today we're going to work with these two the origin and its cessation and then the next couple days of the retreat we're going to talk about the path so There is a uh, a sutta where a deva which is one of the celestial beings comes to the Buddha and the deva asks by what is the world led around by what is it dragged here and there what has all under its control and the buddha's answer the world is led around by craving by craving is it dragged here and there craving has all under its control so we are to the second noble truth dukkha samudayam ariya satyam which is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha and this is what the buddha says and this monks is the noble truth of the origination of dukkha the craving that makes for further becoming accompanied by passion and delight relishing now here now there ie craving for sensual pleasures craving for becoming and craving for non becoming and so that first one craving for sensual pleasures we can kind of understand right the things that we experience through our senses these things that we like craving for things like this becoming um the word here used is bhava um and that can also be understood as existence so when you are craving for existence there's your reason for going on in this samsaric cycle craving for existence and also craving for non-existence and this could mean as subtle as gross as wanting to end your life in this life or it could be as subtle as wanting to get off the wheel of samsara right craving for non-existence so there's these three things that the buddha gives in his original definition for this noble truth and so the word used um where the the pali word is tanha that's the word you most often hear as craving um viewed literally 
Tanha means thirst. And so this is our never-ending thirst. The mind's never-ending thirst to reach out and to have pleasurable experiences that please the mind. And so, indeed, this is um, what keeps us in this realm, uh, what keeps us stuck in samsara, and what keeps us to be close friends with dukkha. The Buddha says, this samsara is without discoverable, discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering, on, roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. This goes where the, the Buddha said that he looked back as far as he could and he could not find a beginning to this. So we've been stuck in this cycle. Um, and w- one, of the, uh, one of the similes uh, for this is a monkey going from tree to tree. You know, that's uh, us going from life to life. We're going to see a couple similes with monkeys in this, uh, in this talk. And that's the first one. So a monkey going from tree to tree. And so in the suttas, the Buddha also gives a conditionality of craving, actually. And it goes like this. Craving, conditioned, seeking. When we crave, we go out on a quest to fulfill that craving. That conditions acquisition to get what we want. Acquisition conditions decision-making. Once we have what we want, we make decisions and think about what we want to do with it. And that conditions lustful desire, which conditions attachment And then appropriation. After that comes avarice and the guarding of possessions. And what do you expect comes after the guarding of possessions? Buddha says, Then there arises the taking up of sticks and sword, quarrels, disputes, arguments, strife, abuse, lying. So there's many different similes that the the Buddha gives in the suttas regarding craving. The first one is this a person who is just in a stream, allowing themselves to be taken down by the stream, and it's very pleasant, and they're enjoying themselves. And all of a sudden, there's somebody on the bank. That person is warning the person, you know, there's a there's whirlpools and all kinds of rocks and danger down there. Be careful. And that the person on the stream is too busy enjoying, ah, oh, this is such a nice, pleasant spring day. Who do you think the person is warning? Who's the person who's warning, right? It's the Buddha. The Buddha's warning us about going with the flow of our craving. Another simile is in from the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says that even if it was raining gold, that would not quench our thirst, our tanha. And a funny story I heard um, 
once from Bhante G. He talks about a person who is, is out working and they come back for the day and they found out it rained gold and their house is full to the brim with gold coins. And they get all excited that they have all of this gold in their house. And then the next thought is, I wish I had a bigger house. <laughs> that is craving. That is desire for this. And so there's uh, another simile where <clears throat> the Buddha talks about we are hit by the arrow of craving with the poison tip of ignorance. And the Buddha, being the com- cons- consummate physician that he is, is the one, the surgeon, who takes that arrow out. And then a final simile is the simile of a person who's really, really, maybe they were in in the desert and they're totally, really, really thirsty and they're offered a drink, a wonderful, tasty, sweet drink. But the problem is that that drink is also poison. And this person drinks of this drink, even though they know it's poison. So this is, this is tanha. This is our thirst. This is how we are led around by our craving and the danger in going with the flow of our craving. But there is one desire, one craving that is, if not wholesome, at least leads you in a good direction. Ananda talks uh, about, uh, Ananda is the uh, chief uh, attendant of the Buddha. And in one sutta he talks about, it is through craving that craving is let go. So if you have a craving to end all of your craving, then at least that craving is putting you in the right direction. And so I wanted to talk about the three roots, often also called the three poisons in other traditions like Tibetan. Um, These three roots arise with craving and are tied in with craving. These three roots are lobha, which is often translated as greed. Dosa, which is translated as hatred and moha, which is translated as delusion. Lopa is the, what I like to call the I like mind. This is when you have experiences, you meet people, go to wonderful places, great, good tastes, whatever. You have this experience, oh, I like it. I want more of it. I want as much of it as I can find and I want to hold on to it and cling to it and I don't want to let it go. That's lobha. Dosa is the I dislike mind. A mind of aversion. I don't like it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to push it away. I want to hide from it. Get it away from me. And these two are basically two sides of the same coin when it comes to craving. 
Craving is the desire for things to go the way we want them to go. And then moha, which is, <laughs> the first one is I like, the second one is I dislike, the third one is I am, our delusion. What is the delusion? The delusion of this identity view. This identity that we create, that enjoys, that, that makes the decisions between I like and I dislike. And then follows through with our actions with that. So greed, hatred, and delusion are inside all of us. Every one of us. These are the roots by which many, not all, but many of our actions come from these three roots. When you're sitting there meditating and you have a pain, What's the first thing? Oh, let me change my posture. Let me do something to alleviate that pain, to, to change it. And if I can't change it, at least let me try to run away from it. <clears throat> and when, we, um, when we're eating something, oh, we like it. And maybe we kind of covet, one, you know, we're on our plate, we're coveting, oh, I like this section. I'm not too kind of this section. Or maybe I'll eat this good section first or last. You know, these... This mind, I like and I dislike. Um, so this is something that, uh, this is part of what leads us around, leads us back and forth, all over the place. I like and I dislike. You know, it's in all of us, greed, hatred, and delusion. And people get, you know, people get uh, all hung up and mad about governments or corporations or this or that. Governments are made of us. Corporations are made of us. We all have greed, hatred, and delusion. That is the root. That is the root. Now there's a, a wonderful um, simile by Milarepa, who's a, an old Buddhist monk. Um, and... Uh, Going back a couple thousand years ago, a thousand years ago, I'm not too familiar with his story, but he has a wonderful simile of the dog and the lion. Right? So if you throw a stick, the dog goes after the stick, the lion goes after you. <laughs> so you want to be the lion that goes to the root. And when we are watching our mind, watching our intentions, we look at that greed, hatred, and delusion. We look and see how these guide us. We want the world to meet our expectations. We set expectations for the world. It should be this way. It should be that way. I like it this way. I like it that way. And when the world laughs at your expectations and <laughs> it doesn't go that way, then you suffer for it. And we create our own suffering in that regard. So, I wanted to switch off to next talk about upadana, which is clinging. Now, in uh, dependent origination, we have craving, and then the next step from that, from craving, comes clinging. Um, this word is also translated as grasping, attachment, or fuel. 
And what does the Buddha say about this? There are these four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rules and vows, and clinging to doctrine of self. There's the sensual pleasures in the self again. Right? That's a, a common theme that you're going to find. Clinging to the doctrine of self and our views. And so there's a, a wonderful simile that I heard regarded that fits this again with a, a monkey. And supposedly in, in southern India, there's an old way of capturing uh, monkeys that hunters used to use, where they would hollow out a coconut with a hole just large enough for a monkey to put their hand in there. And they'd put like a sweets or whatever, or fruits in that coconut. And the monkey would go put their hand in and grab the sweet and find out that the monkey can't take their hand out of the coconut with the sweet. And for some reason, well, maybe we know the reason, the monkey would, all the monkey has to do is let go and take their hand out. But they don't. They sit there trying to figure out how they can have their cake and eat it too. How can they get their, their sweet and then get themselves free? And then what happens? The hunter comes around and takes them out while they're busy trying to <laughs> worry about the sweet that they, um, that they are clinging to. And so if craving is that initial desire that sends us out on our seeking, on our searching to satisfy this craving, upadana is like feeding fuel to the fire. That's why it's the, one of the definitions is fuel. Upadana is we have this craving, maybe we have something, we, we, we grasp it and we hold on to it, we cling to it. Or we're trying to cling or grasp to more things to hold on to, to cling to. So this, uh, this clinging is very dangerous to uh, to our life, to our practice. This clinging is something that makes a, a problem that we already have even worse. And you might have heard this term upadana. Bhante Panyaratana spoke about it yesterday with the upadana khandas, the five clinging aggregates. Right? Even these aspects of our experience we cling to them right? we cling to these five aggregates and we create views the, the Pali word is manyamano which is um, you can use it as you can translate it as conceive one of the ways you can translate it as is imagine so we imagine these things we imagine these views and this identity and we imagine what this identity wants and what it doesn't want. And we cling to these five aggregates as this identity. And of course, we also cling to our senses. Right? We like our sight. We like our hearing. We like our, well, sometimes we like our smelling. <laughs> we like our tasting. Right? We like all of these things. We cling to these. We want only wonderful sounds and beautiful sights and, and uh, you know, 
beautiful, um, good smells and all these kind of things. All of this is part of our craving and our clinging. And so, the next section I'd like to talk about is the world's bait. In the suttas, there's, uh, there's this concept of bait in the world. In a sutta, a deva comes to the, to the Buddha and, and says, life is swept along. I'm saying life is swept along. Very short is its, is its stance. We should do good deeds as for as long as we have left. And the Buddha's response to that is, life is swept along. Next to nothing is its length. One should drop the world's bait and seek peace. So in the Majjhima Nikaya, number 25, the sutta is called Nivapa, N-I-V-A-P-A, and that translates to bait. So... In this sutta, the Buddha gives a simile of um, deers, this battle between deers and and a deer hunter. (coughs) The deer hunter puts out his bait for the deers to come. And there's a first group of deers and they go in and they just eat the bait and they get caught. And then the hunter does with them as, as they wish. And so there's these successful, successive groups of deer who see the first group screw up and then try to you know, do something sneaky to get away from this hunter. And uh, it's a, a really interesting simile. But the hunter in this simile is Mara. Mara um, is, as Bhante Panyaratana said, Mara is... Uh, the tempter. Um, he is the being that in the Buddhist mythologies goes to all the monks and the nuns and tries to trick them and tempt them into you know, doing all kinds of bad stuff. And you can, um, some people see Mara as a, um, a personification of our own minds or the different personalities and different things in our, own, in our own minds. Some people view Mara also in the suttas. Uh, Mara is a type of existence. So in the past, this is probably a good chance that we've all been a Mara in one way or another. So Mara is this hunter, and he's setting out the world's bait. What is the world's bait? The world's bait is the five chords of sensual pleasures. These five chords of sensual pleasures are um, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touch, tangibles, that are pleasing, pleasant, that we like, that we want more of. These are the five chords of sensual pleasures. And the Buddha is very adamant in practicing to let go of these five chords of sensual pleasures. Now, you can think of these chords almost like uh, the chords, you can think of like Pinocchio or something, right? Chord, like a puppet. These five chords of sensual pleasures create us, create a puppet in us, 
that. We follow them along wherever the cords pull us. We follow, you know, going after all of these various wonderful experiences. And so there's another simile with uh, a monkey where the monkey, again, is with the monkeys and hunters. You can see that there's a lot of these kind of similes regarding this type of, um, this part. And there's a, a tar, a something sticky put out. And a monkey comes around and gets stuck in that tar. And then the monkey thinks, well, I'm going to free myself, free this hand with the other hand, and gets that hand stuck. And then the monkey says, well, I'm going to free my hands with my foot and puts the foot there and gets the foot stuck and so on. So then has both, both hands and both feet stuck in this tar. And then the only thing it can do is try to free itself with its mouth and then it gets stuck. So at five points, this monkey is trapped and the hunter, the, the end of the story is the hunter comes around and spears him and, and takes off with the. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, quarry. So these five chords of sensual pleasures not only drag us around, they also trap us. They leave us open for Mara to come. They leave us open for suffering. And Going back to the simile of the man rolling down, rolling down uh, on the stream, the Buddha talks about ogha, or floods. One of those floods is the floods of sensual desire. And the Buddha says that there is an inexhaustible amount of sensual desire, of the five chords there's an inexhaustible amount of experiences that you can have. There's no way to exhaust them, like a big flood. You could go on life after life after life after life and still not exhaust this flood. And so, this is craving and clinging. This is the um, this is the three roots. This is what we this is our origin of dukkha. This is what creates dukkha. And it's not something out there. It's within us. We have a choice. We don't realize we have a choice. But we have the choice to let go of our craving and our clinging. And that's what this practice helps us do. Little by little, as we practice, we're able to learn to let go. And we all are on the path at different levels in different ways, and we're all following our own path and our own practice. No matter where we are, as a layperson or a monastic, we can learn to let go in a variety of different ways. Because when you practice and you begin to understand your mind and see your mind, then you see what this does to your mind. And 
you get tired of that. And so the Buddha exhorts us to develop the path that leads to the destruction of craving. And what is that path? That path is the seven factors of awakening. Many of you might know what that is. Others, you've, you're going, well, what's the seven factors of awakening? I was actually a practitioner for a bunch of years before I even heard that. I had no idea what it was. So these seven factors of awakening are the factors that lead on to our next topic, which is Nibbana or Nirvana. <clears throat> so these factors, the first one is, the first link in this seven factors is mindfulness. That's the first link. That's where you start. We start with mindfulness. Once our mindfulness is established, we investigate. Investigation of dhammas. Dhammavitya is the Pali word. So we're investigating our experience. That is what we're doing when we're sitting down to meditate or when we're doing anything in life that we're able to be aware of our intentions, watch our mind, watch what's going on in our mind, in our body. We're investigating these things. So once we investigate, mental energy is brought up. That's the next step. Those of you who know about the five hindrances, you've ever tried to deal with, well, what do you do with sloth and torpor? when you're really, really tired, or you investigate to develop energy. And when you do that, the sloth and torpor goes away. And then you're dealing with restlessness. <laughs> you go back and forth. So, once energy arises, then piti arises, this rapture, joy. And from joy stems tranquility. And then from tranquility, we gain concentration. People think that concentration is like uh, going like that. But concentration actually comes by itself when you set the groundwork of tranquility and joy. Concentration comes very easily. And then after concentration comes equanimity, an equanimous mind. So these are these seven factors of awakening that the Buddha speaks about. This is how you lead to the end of craving. And there's a... I'm speaking about ending our craving. There's a, a simile where they're called the sandcastle, where the Buddha speaks about children who are playing with sandcastles. And he says that while the children have lots of passion and love and, and care and enjoyment of their sandcastles, they treasure them and they keep them safe. But once that passion and excitement and, and all of that goes away, they destroy them. They don't care about them. So this is a simile for our 
practice as we learn to let go. We develop nibbida, which is disenchantment. And that's not an aversion for the world. That's not, oh, I hate the world. That's, you know, the world doesn't bring me as much happiness and excitement as I thought, as it used to. It's when you start to see deep, more deep, you see deeply the nature of existence, you start to develop this nibbida. That leads to viraga, which is dispassion. Just like the kids with the same castles. They've lost their enchantment for the castles. They don't care about, they don't have any passion for that castle anymore. They let it go. And that leads to vimuti, which is freedom. So this is how we move towards letting go of our craving. It's not easy. This is probably, well, I would say it is the hardest thing a human being could ever do, doing this practice wholeheartedly, fully, sincerely. It's not easy. And no matter where you are in the practice, it's been my experience that you still have a lot more to go. <laughs> I've, I've let go of so much in my life. And then I look, I'm like, oh, I still have to let go of all this. So we're all doing this gradually, little by little, learning to let go. And at the end of letting go is peace. And so we'll move to the third noble truth. Dukkha nirodham ariyasacham. The noble truth of the cessation of dukkha. And so what does the Buddha say to this? And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the remainderless fading away and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. So when you look at the word nibbana, one of the ways to translate Nibbana is extinguishment, going out. And the most famous simile for Nibbana is the oil lamp. This is the idea of Nibbana is like an oil lamp that goes out. Not because the wind knocked out the fire or because of any other reason, but because the fuel is exhausted. There is no more upadana. There is no more fuel. And that lamp goes out. That is the most common simile for Nibbana. And as you'll see, there's a reason why it's popular because it's impossible to really explain Nibbana in conceptual terms. But this, before we get into that, Nibbana, this letting go, 
this going out is the whole point of this practice. It's the point of this path. And wherever we're at on the path, eventually the path leads to Nibbana. And whether it's somebody who's practicing, just practicing generosity, maybe they don't do meditation. Or maybe somebody's really practicing meditation. Wherever people are on the path, they're practicing to let go. And so, that is where they are. We're all leading towards this point. If you follow this path of practice, which we'll be talking about the next two days, it leads to Nibbana. It leads to extinguishment, to letting go. Some of you might be like, oh, that's kind of scary. <laughs> but it's okay. The closer you get there, the more, the best it sounds. No. So, what is Nibbana? <clears throat> the, one of the when one of the descriptions of nibbana that the Buddha, actually the most common description of nibbana is the ending of loba dosa moha <clears throat> greed, <clears throat> greed hatred and delusion <clears throat> an awakened being is the only being that does not have greed hatred and delusion it's done it's cut out at the root all of their actions are not from this root of greed, hatred, and delusion. They create no more karma or kama in their actions. It's also, obviously, the ending of the clinging aggregates. Our clinging aggregates become aggregates because we're no longer clinging to them. We're no longer creating and imagining them as this kind of being, this self. We've let go of that. And now we just have these five aggregates. And of course it is the ending of craving. And to confuse you a little bit, I'm going to talk about a couple of the excuse me I'm going to talk about a couple of the when people ask the Buddha what is Nibbana and people ask them all the time people ask the Buddha all kinds of stuff and we know a little bit from the question and answer yesterday um, what the Buddha's answer was to a lot of these questions but he says there is an unborn an unmade, an unbecome. You say, well, what is that? What is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, unconditioned? What does that mean? Well, that's Nibbana. And Buddha says, there is neither coming, nor going, nor stasis. So how can you neither come, nor go, nor be still. (laughs) There is neither arising nor passing away. There is no foundation. This 
just this is the ending of dukkha. So you're thinking to yourself, there's no arising, no passing, no not going anywhere, unmade, unbecome. And you're thinking about all these words and there's confusion that arises. That's because we're trying to intellectually understand something that can only be experienced. The Buddha cannot explain to us what exactly Nibbana is. He cannot talk about these things because they are beyond conceptual and conventional frameworks. And so he says, this is peace. This is exquisite. The stilling of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars do not shine, the sun is not visible. The moon does not appear. Darkness is not found. There's no sun, there's no moon. There's no darkness. And when a sage, a Brahmin through sagacity, has known this for himself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he is freed. Sounds confusing. Sounds mystical. Sounds magical. But actually, it doesn't have to be. I think one of the problems these days, and one of the reasons why in many, even Buddhist cultures, there's this idea that nobody can become awakened, is that we make it out to be this mystical, magical thing. But when you look at it through the lens of greed, hatred, and delusion, could you imagine a mind without greed, hatred, and delusion? Probably not. But have you had experiences in your mind, even if it was just for a second or two, where there was no greed or hatred or delusion, where there was just peace, right? then maybe you're starting to come close to possibly understanding what that might be like. We can't because we're not there yet. But we can understand that this practice is a gradual practice. And if we get get it all in our heads that, oh, Nibbana is this magical, mystical thing and we can't, you know, I'm not, I can't attain it, <clears throat> then we're not going to practice. Or maybe we practice for wrong reasons. There's nothing, nothing bad that comes out of practicing learning how to let go. In fact, it's been my experience and the experience of any, I would say the experience of any meditator who's been doing this for a long time and who has seen good progress, they'll tell you that 
this gradual practice leads to this peace and tranquility. And letting go is not that hard. But we let go what we can of what we can when we can. Sometimes we're not ready, and that's okay. But if we see this practice as this gradual improvement of our mind, right? There's a, the Buddha says that the mind is luminous, but it is clouded by defilements. And I like to think of this as a simile of a lighthouse. A lighthouse that has all kinds of gunk around it. So that you can't even see the light that's coming out of it. And as we begin to practice, it's like we're up at that lighthouse and we're chipping away at the gunk. And gradually over time, little beams of light are coming out. And eventually one day, all the gunk is gone. And that lighthouse beams out with this bright light of wisdom, compassion, and understanding. That is attainable by all of us if we wish to sincerely and in a dedicated manner practice this path. And so it's up to you if you'd like to do this. But indeed, this path is, this Nibbana is a, an unraveling of all of our conditions. I am man. I am from this country. I am this ancestry. Whatever. All of that is being unraveled. There's a wonderful little um, section in the uh, the section of the elder nuns um, where this uh, bhikkhuni is there and, and Mara comes and says you know uh, a woman can't a woman can't do this a woman can't reach nibbana and she says when you're in this state what does man woman matter right she says that is man woman these kind of identities these kind of things that we attach to and create are suitable for Mara. So we're unraveling everything. Even this ideal, this idea that we have this self, this me. I am this person from this place. It's being unraveled. All conditionality, all conditions, all concepts unraveled which is why you can't really explain it the Buddha can't explain it we have to do this follow this path for ourselves. and when we do we reach this peace and freedom of letting go and so normally what we do when we do a talk here we start with some kind of pithy uh Pali phrase that we chant um, but I'm going to end with one and this is called the victory cry of the Arahants it's said that when uh, a person becomes awakened 
This is what they know. This is what they understand in their own experience. It's their victory cry. Their lion's roar. And it goes like this. Kina jati vusatang brahmacharyang katang karaniyang naparang ittatayati pajanati Birth is ended. The holy life is fulfilled. The task is done. There is nothing further for this world. Thank you, friends. And we, if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the question and answer box, and we'll reconvene again at 7.